for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you have preserved these words of this intimate prayer from our Lord uh, the night before his death on the cross as he uh, prayed to you. And uh, we pray that um, as we study the words of this prayer, that, um, that you uh, would, would grant his request, that we as your church would be one, as, as you are uh, one the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And uh, so we pray that you'd teach us, apply these words of this prayer to our life. And um, Lord, our hearts are open to you. Our minds are open. We, we are hungry for your truth. So teach us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned uh, before, we're looking at the last paragraph of uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer the night before he was crucified. Um, and this is, these are the final words of what's called the high uh, of the uh, upper room discourse. So from John uh, 14 to 16, Jesus has a conversation. It's his final teaching to his disciples before his death. And then he ends that time together with this, this great prayer. And last week, uh, Matt Boffy taught about the first half of that prayer where Jesus was praying for his disciples. And interestingly, the, the final words of Jesus before his arrest is he prays for us. Um, Jesus was thinking about us that night. And you see how this passage begins. I do not ask for these only. So do you, that's his disciples. I don't just ask for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's us. We're the ones who believe in Jesus because of the words of, of the disciples. And so Jesus, in this passage, he's looking forward into the future. He's looking to our community, and he's praying to his Father for us, his deepest desire for us. And what is the thing that he prays for? Verse 21, that they may all be one. It's the heart of our Lord right there. His desire is for our oneness. And I cannot imagine a more relevant topic for us as a church right now that it's Jesus' desire for us to be one. And I've had a number of people tell me recently that our church is not one. 
Uh, it's not simply that we aren't together and, and we've had s- far less community of being in each other's homes, but we're also worshiping in four services and people are worshiping at home. And uh, many of people in our church have not worshiped together. And I, my wife actually was uh, out of town a few weeks ago and was watching the uh, service she usually goes to the third service, and the, the live stream was the second service, and she saw all these people walking by the camera at the end of the service. She's like, oh, those people, like, I haven't seen them in so long. I forget that they even went to our church. And, of course, the lack of oneness of our church is, is deeper than simply the service times we go to. People have strong disagreements about how we should be operating as a church uh, during the time of covid Uh, It's created suspicion and distrust on both sides of the disagreement. And and those who disagree about COVID, unfortunately, we're not worshiping together. And the things that have the power to create oneness, you know, we worshiping God with one voice, confessing our sins out loud together. I mean, what a unifying thing to all hear that we're all sinners or or to um, sit under God's word together to say the words of the Apostles' Creed, this is what we all believe, and then, of course, to come to the Lord's table, the great um, uh, symbol of our unity, and for, the thing that forms us is unified is at the table, and, uh, and we're not doing that together as a body, and so I, this needs to be addressed, and I, I, the thing is that we are going to need to move back together and, uh, and I'll say at the outset of this sermon that our elders have not decided yet exactly what that looks like in our worship services, but I want it to be on our radar. Uh, I want us to hear the words of our Lord in this passage about how important our oneness is to him and to get our hearts ready to move back toward one another. And I know from my own family, we've decided to kind of rotate through all four of the services as we worship each Sunday to see more people in, in the church. And, um, but this is going to mean worshiping with people that we disagree with in, sometime in the, in the near future. And so today I want to talk about being one uh, from these words from John 17. And um, to do that, I'd like to answer these three simple questions. Why do we need to be one? What does it mean to be one? And how can we be a community that is one? Why do we need to be one? Why is this so important to Jesus? What does it mean to be one? What is his vision for oneness? What is oneness in the church? And then how can we be a community that is one? How do we become that kind of community that Jesus has a vision for? So three questions this morning uh, relevant to us. And uh, so the first question is this, why do we need to be one? And actually, there are a lot of answers to that in this passage. In just these seven verses, nine times Jesus uses the Greek word hina, which is, is translated in order that. It's translated a few different ways in this passage, but it, hina is used to start a purpose clause. So when someone is saying, this is the purpose for why I'm doing all this, they use a hina clause. And nine times he's saying, this is the reason, this is why, this is my purpose, this is what's important to me. Oh, and over, he says that. And so I want to point out three of the reasons why Jesus says that our oneness is so important to him. First, we need to be one for the sake of our mission. We need to be one for the sake of our mission. You see what Jesus says, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that, so that's a hina right there, for this purpose, 
the world may believe that you have sent me. Our mission is that the world would know the love of God in Christ. And, uh, and the way Jesus says that they're going to experience and see the love of Christ is the love that we have for each other, the unity that we have as God's people. And he says the same thing there in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that, Hina, for this purpose, that they might become perfectly one, so that, Hina, again, here's my purpose, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Our mission is to make God known to a world that does not know him. And Jesus says here, the way that people in Whatcom County and Bellingham are going to know who he is and going to know the love of Jesus is by our love and unity with each other. And that means that our focus on being one as a church is not a small matter. Whatever work it takes, whatever death to self, whatever death to my high views of my own opinions, whatever humbling of myself, whatever patience it takes, it's worth it. And so the first reason, Jesus says, is because it's essential to our mission. Second, why do we need to be one? We need to be one for the sake of our own perseverance. And uh, in the middle of this passage on oneness, uh, uh, Jesus says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am. Where is that? Where is Jesus? Where is he going to be? where he wants us to be with him. It's in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. And he says, to see my glory. That's where his glory is, is in heaven. That you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. He says that we need to stick together if we are going to make it to heaven. That's our goal. That's what we're persevering towards. And you cannot make it through life faithful to Jesus without a church family. And you can't make it without being unified to the diverse group of disciples that Jesus calls to himself. And, you know, many people in our generation have become cynical about the church. And they've said, you know, the church has failed in so many ways and it's promised so much and it's let me down. And, and of course that's true. The church throughout history has been imperfect and been flawed. And the reason for that is because Jesus is gathering sinners together and sticking them all together and with a, as a family and we bring our sin with us into that family. And I, you know, I think about it like who else is trying something like this? what Jesus is doing in every nation, in all kinds of people groups and cultures, bringing different people together and saying, you're all going to be a family. I think, of course, no one's trying this hard, but Jesus believes in this project. And, um, you know, it strikes me that every week when we say the Apostles' Creed and we say, what do we believe in as a church? We say, I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the church. And the reason we have to say I believe in the church is because it is flawed. And it is a matter of faith to say I believe in this project and I'm going to be a part of it. I'm going to be a part of the project of the church. And, you know, in my own devotions, I was reading Revelation this week. And in the book of Revelation, um, the church is, the image for the church is a lampstand. And Jesus is called the one who walks among the lampstands. And I think ultimately as we say, why do I believe in this church? Why do I need to be here? Why do, is this the place of perseverance? Is because Jesus is here. And I know there's all kinds of flawed people that we're going to have to figure out how to get along with. But, but ultimately the reason I'm here is because Jesus is walking among us. We believe that Jesus is walking among us. And you and I need the church for our spiritual lives if we are going to persevere to the end. Because this is the place where Jesus is. 
So why is our oneness so important? First, it's essential for our mission. Second, it's essential for our perseverance. Third, um, we, need to, we, need to be one because we need to be one in order to become like Jesus. And you see what he says there in verse 26. I made known uh, to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that, Hina, for this purpose, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus' goal for us is that God's love would be in us and that Jesus would be formed in us, that we would become like Christ. And you cannot become more like Jesus apart from the community of his disciples and the church. Uh, actually, I have a, a professor in seminary who did his PhD on maturity in the New Testament. And he was surprised to find that every instance of maturity in the New Testament, maturity meant playing your role in the body of Christ. It's a communal thing. You cannot, by definition, be mature as an individual. It is being, playing your role in the community is what maturity is. And so to become like Christ, we need the church. And, you know, oftentimes, the, the times that we become more like Christ is often through conflict. You know, it's, it's similar to a marriage. One of the reasons why marriage is hard and you have to stick through the hard times of marriage is because it's in the conflict of marriage that all of our selfishness and our, you know, unrealistic expectations have risen to the surface and they're getting exposed and they're getting worked out and they're getting humbled and they're getting refined through that conflict. And if you run away from the conflict, the work that God intended to do in you through your marriage won't get done. It's the same thing in the church. God is teaching us love through this community that we would become like him. And that means my spiritual life is dependent on staying united with his community. So why does Jesus say we need to be one? Because it's essential to our mission, because we need it to persevere in our faith. And through community, we become more like him. We become more mature. Now, many of us have a sense, though, that there can be a kind of fake or superficial kind of oneness. Uh, where everyone's nice to each other and no one disagrees and we don't talk about anything hard. And maybe you grew up in a family like that where the real hard issues in the family are just kind of brushed under the rug and you knew that everyone knew there was a big issue, but we just never talked about it. And we never dealt with it. We never faced it. And is that what Jesus wants for the church? And, well, that, that leads to our second question is what does it mean to be one? What does it mean to be one? And what is Jesus' vision for the kind of oneness that we should have? And Jesus clearly roots our oneness in the Trinity. That there is one God who exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says that multiple times in this passage. If you look at verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So just as the Father and the Son love or dwell in each other, that's what our life together should be. And he says it again in verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the relationship of the Son and the Father is what we're doing here. Where it's like we're mirroring the relationship of the Father and the Son. And then in verse 26, again, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the love of the Father for the Son is the kind of love that we're supposed to have for each other. So over and over again, the love and unity of the church is a reflection of who God himself is. That's why people learn about God's love by, through us, is because we're reflecting what he's like. 
And so when we ask, what does it mean to be one? The answer comes from the theology of the Trinity. And I want to make two observations about the community that God himself has within the Trinity that I think relate to us, okay? The first observation is that the Trinity is not enmeshed. The Trinity is not enmeshed. What does it mean to be enmeshed? You know, if you've ever been in a relationship where you feel like you kind of disappear as a person, you know, or you feel trapped in the relationship, or you feel like, you know, I don't even know who I am anymore because I've been kind of swallowed up in the relationship, that's what enmeshment kind of feels like. You know, it could be, for example, in a family where everyone in the family basically exists to meet the needs of the most unhealthy person in the family. And so if you do anything that's about your kind of who you are as an individual in the family, then you're kind of betraying the family, betraying the trust of the family. And so there's a sense in which you're locked into and, and who anyone is as an individual. If there's any individuality, it's a betrayal of the family. And, uh, and so you feel guilty for wanting to exist as a distinct individual. Well, often when we've been enmeshed, Maybe you grew up in a family like that or you've been in a relationship like that. And the way we react to that is we just say, I, I got to get away. You know, when you turn 18, you move across the country. You're like, I'm going to be away from my family. I want to be independent. I don't want anyone. Uh, I'm not going to get stuck in a relationship like that again. And so we cut ourselves off completely. You notice that in, 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 in enmeshment, there are not two distinct people in a free relationship with each other. The distinct people disappear into each other. But also, when you're independent and alone, there are not two distinct people in relationship either. But Christians throughout history have insisted that Jesus and the Father are not the same person. They are distinct. The Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father, and the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. They are free, distinct persons who are in a relationship of love together and that is the kind of oneness that we are supposed to have in the church. And when our community reflects the Trinity, we are neither squash our individuality, the fact that we're all different, and never cover it up and squash the individuality, but we don't idolize our individuality either. We're neither enmeshed or independent. And when we're neither enmeshed nor independent, we can lovingly, respectfully, honestly face one another in the midst of our disagreements. Let me say that again. When we are neither enmeshed nor independent, we can lovingly, respectfully, honestly face one another in the midst of our disagreements. And so the one thing that the Trinity teaches us about our unity is this diversity and unity, you know, the, the distinction of who we are as individuals and yet approaching each other in love and honesty. So what is, the, what is our community? It's not enmeshment, but the second thing is the Trinity is a glory-giving community. The Trinity is a glory-giving community. You see the mention of giving glory here in this passage in verse 24. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that's why I say the Trinity is a glory-giving community. And this is one of my favorite things about who our God is a community of glory giving. And, uh, and before I explain that and apply it to our, let me just say a little bit about the word glory. Glory is kind of a religious word that shows up in the Bible. We don't use that word a lot in our culture. But basically, what, it has two meanings. 
And uh, glory on the one hand means kind of a, a beauty that has a shining, attractive light to it. And, you know, in beauty in life, you know, when you're in a room and a beautiful person walks in, all, all people will kind of notice that beautiful person because it's like they kind of stand out. And, and um, beauty has an attractive quality to it. All of us long to behold beauty and to see it. And because of that, that beauty attracts attention, it, it's related to a second definition of glory, is that glory also means fame. So if a per, person has a lot of glory, it means that they're famous. And so the reason why God is the most glorious person is because he's the most uh, beautiful being in existence, and he's the creator. He should be the most famous. And so the Bible says in Isaiah 42.8, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. No one's glory can compare or compete to the Lord's. Now, some of you, if you've read through the Bible, you'll read passages like that, and you might wonder, you say, why does God always need everyone to praise him, and he wants all the glory? And, you know, if you meet a person like that, we always think people are like that are kind of insecure, and why do they need, they're kind of glory hungry and needing people's affirmation. Is God like that? Um, but that verse in Isaiah is really about God saying, I'm not going to share my glory with any idols, any other false gods. But in this passage, the picture becomes much clearer that God is not an insecure glory taker. God himself is a glory-giving community. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Father and, and the Son. He's not glory-taking. He's glory-giving. And what's more surprising, the Bible says, not only, uh, says that God will actually give us glory. So God is not going to share his glory with idols but he does share his glory with us. And this is amazing words that are in verse 22. Look at what it says. Jesus prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. This glory-giving community that is God himself, we have all been welcomed into and become a part of that glory-giving community. And so what does that mean for us if that's what we are as a glory-giving community? Well, there's a couple of ways that the Apostle Paul describes it for, for church lives. In Romans, he says, we should outdo one another in showing honor. In Philippians, he says, esteem one another better than yourself. That is how you be a glory-giving community. Um, and what he is assuming is that everyone in the church has something to be esteemed, something to be honored. And we should see that in people, and we should honor them and say it to them. And I think, you know, we need to understand that everyone in the church is a mixture of sin and glory. And, you know, when it comes to our, our disagreements that we have as a church, I think this is really helpful to remember that all of you are a mixture of sin and glory. I'm a mixture of sin and glory. And so, you know, especially with our opinions, I, I find that it's helpful to think, you know, I'm, I'm probably 75% right about whatever opinions I have. I'm mostly right, okay? But I should assume, I should have built in that I have some blind spots. And you're probably 75%. I don't know what my 25% is that is my blind. I think I wouldn't believe it if I thought it was wrong. But I just assume I have some blind spots. And you should assume you have some blind spots. Who's going to point out my blind spots? The people who disagree with me. You know, it's kind of like in your marriage. You know, it's your spouse who's going to point out the blind spots. You're going to see and expose your blind spots that we need one another. And so if I view you as you're probably 75% right, there is a lot to honor and to, and to, to uh, be glory-giving, to esteem. 
But there are also things where it slows down that I need to listen to you to find out where my blind spots are. And what this does when we view each other this way is it turns the temperature down on our disagreements. It also enables us to give honor to people we disagree with, to value and appreciate them, and to see their glory and beauty. And so what is oneness? I think this is an incredible definition. It is a community that reflects the Trinity. Distinct, free persons who neither disappear into one another, nor say, I don't need you, but join with God in being a glory-giving community to one another. That's the vision that Jesus has. And so the, question, the last question then is that how do we become a community that is one like that? How do we become that kind of community? And I've been reading a a book on church history recently. It's called Dominion. It's written by an atheist. talks about the kind of the uh, Christian impact on culture throughout um, church history. And in the book, it uh, it shares a story from Eusebius. Eusebius was a church historian in the 4th century who wrote about a lot of the early martyrs from the early centuries of the church. And he tells a story about a uh, a Christian prisoner in the year uh, 177, he was in Vienna, he was in prison, and this prisoner, when he was being interrogated by his captors, they would ask him, what's your name? And he would say, I'm a Christian. they say, where were you born? I'm a Christian. Are you a slave? Are you free? I'm a Christian. And every identity marker, they asked him to find out who he was. Every answer was, I'm a son of the Father in heaven. I'm a, I belong to the Lord Jesus. I'm a member of the church. This is who I am. This is what my identity is. And, the, and the, the book I was reading said this about it. Such obduracy to his judges was baffling as well as infuriating. The refusal of Christians to identify themselves as belonging to one of the familiar peoples of the earth, the Romans, the Greeks, or the Jews, branded them as rootless just as bandits and runaways were. Their delight in posing as aliens, as transients, made a boast out of what should properly have been a cause of shame. To them, a homeland is a foreign country and a foreign country a homeland. And yet for all that, Christians did believe they belonged to a common ethnos, a people. Christians did not identify with the groups of the world, and that's what kept them from splitting. We belong to a people. It's the people who love Jesus. And so how can we be one as a community above all the other labels that we could bring into this community is, I am a Christian. I am loved by my Father in heaven. I belong body and soul to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus says our identity is here. Look at verse 23 again. I in them... And you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Who are we as a community? When someone comes in here and says, who are these people? What is the defining mark of us? We're the people who have been loved by the Father the way Jesus has been loved. And how should I view you? My Father adopted you. My father embraced you and brought you into his family. My father fed you. My father washed you. My father taught you and disciplined you and protected you. My father does all those things for you. I should do those things for you too. 
And you might say, well, you know, there are all kinds of Christians out there, though, that I just can't align myself with. And a lot of that is kind of Christians out in the ether, whether they're progressive Christians or whether they're Christian nationalists, whatever it is, I'm saying for the purpose of this sermon, forget about them. I'm talking about the people in this room and the people in those other three services and the people at home, the people that are our neighbors, that God in his providence has called us to be one with. Those are the people we need to face, the real living flesh and blood people around us. And one of the most important things the gospel says about God's love for us is that he does not judge us. We must be a community that constantly says to ourselves, God did not judge me, so I'm free to not judge the other people here. And so when it comes to COVID, a topic that's so complicated is so many articles and so many opinions, how dangerous is the virus? How does it spread? Are masks effective or not? Do your best to understand all those things, but don't let this be the thing that you judge your brothers and sisters about. And we have people in our church who say both, that the Bible says we need to comply with the government even if we don't like it. And we have others who say the Bible says we need to obey God and not man and not let the government shape our spiritual community. Both sides make some reasonable points. Let's keep it at 75%. We're about 75% right. The thing that makes us able to debate these important issues without fracturing is instead of saying that I'm a mask wearer or a non-mask wearer, I'm politically left or politically right, I think COVID is dangerous or I think it's overblown, how do we be one is above all we say, I am a Christian. I love Jesus. I live in obedience to his word. Because I believe in Jesus, I will stay one with his people for the sake of our mission and for the sake of my own perseverance and for the sake of Christ being formed in me. And the church is not to be enmeshed where our individuality and distinctiveness disappears, but we are a glory-giving community that esteems one another better than ourselves. And the only way we can do that is if we believe Jesus is here. He is walking among the lampstands. He has chosen and called each individual who is here so our oneness is only in him. And so let us keep our eyes fixed on our Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we know that since Jesus is praying for these things for us. That means that this call to oneness is not something that we can do in our own strength. It is, it is only an answer to prayer. And uh, he knows how rare such oneness is in, in a fallen world. And, and yet he prays believing that you can grant these things. And so we too pray with our Lord that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. As the Father loves the Son, that we would love one another. And uh, we pray that you would guide us as a church as we need to move back towards one another. Help us to do that. Give us your wisdom. Give us grace and truth. Um, that we would be united in grace and truth, both. And so, Lord, we love you, and um, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.